Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, this morning I'm continuing with uh, 1 Corinthians, and I'd like to read from uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, just a short verse. Uh, let me tell you my title, and uh, we'll read this, and then I'll tell you my main points. The church is an ethic. Maybe I should st- state that differently. The church is an ethic, a presence, a worship. And the idea here, these are not something the church has or something the church does simply, but it is uh, definitive. And that's the point here in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. A kind of preliminary note here is the the you. Uh, I think we can read this precisely wrong. The you here is not singular. It is the corporate body. It is the plurality you. And the book as a whole is a call for the Corinthians to turn from their notion that the gospel is concerned simply with individual spiritual fulfillment. And so there is a misrecognition of the body of Christ, not simply at the Lord's table, which he'll take up in chapter 11, but in a sense the whole book is about this misrecognition. They failed to recognize that God's Spirit is not given to individuals, but to the community. And it is on behalf of this community of people that we are all, they are all, to exercise their spiritual gifts. Uh, And this then, you know, the exercise of the gifts, is an ethic. It is the ethic of love. And so think of the gifts, you know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience. Those are not things you go to your bedroom and do by yourself. No, those are corporate things that we do those in the community. And so the Spirit dwells in us corporately. And Paul is warning them, if you divide, then you lose the Spirit. In a sense, you lose Christ. If you individualize, you're going to lose the Holy Spirit. If you do not love as Christ loved, you'll lose the reality of worship. This is what worship is. In a sense, then, you're to be the church. And to not do these things is to fail to be the church. So to read this as though it spoke of the Spirit, the you here, as if it spoke of the Spirit dwelling in the individual Christian, that's precisely to miss Paul's metaphor. The, you know, apostolically founded community, he says, takes the place of the Jerusalem temple as the place where God's glory resides. 
So the Corinthians, he calls them throughout to a church-centered, an ecclesiological-centered ethic. Be the church. And this corporate recognition of who you are, of Christ's presence, the Holy Spirit's presence, that's the point of the book of Corinthians. So if we misread this verse, I'm afraid we're going to misread the whole book. The reading of this you is singular. I believe this is precisely, you know, to, to read it as singular, rather, is precisely their problem and perhaps it's our problem today. We might imagine the body, uh, that the body is, uh, we are to recognize is me. Oh, I'm the temple, I'm the... No, that's not what Paul is saying. Not myself, separate from the corporate body. We might imagine that Christian ethics, love of neighbor, self-sacrificial service, you know, connoting giving, giving of everything, is something I add on to being a Christian or being part of the church. But for Paul, he says this in Romans... This is our spiritual worship. That is, it's no longer simply something that we're doing as, you know, on, on a Sunday morning, but our worship, our self-sacrificial service, our tra- the transformation of our mind, this is who we are in Christ. So God transforms, He saves a people, not atomized individuals and to do ethics to imagine that we can do christian ethics apart from the church apart from this ecclesiology that's unthinkable for paul and so today i want to draw three conclusions about paul's equating us with the church first one is the temple was the center of worship you know what it uh, the, te- the temple is the center of God's presence. The temple is the ethical life of Jew- the Jews. And so when Paul says, you are the temple, he is saying, the church is the temple. We are the temple. And this means that we are equated with all of these. That we are then the, the worship. We are the presence. Uh, that we are the ethic. And this is not to say that the church simply has these things, but it is these things. So Paul, Paul doesn't say, oh, you're like a temple or you're, you know. No, he says you are the temple. So we cannot allow for any separation between who we are and these three things. Now, this might sound like a minor point, but I'm going to develop it. That the body of Christ is divine by equating these things. That's the point in Chapter 11, which is about communion. Communion, Eucharist, that's been a big controversy in the history of the church. I think our tendency is to locate the body of Christ outside of the corporate body and to imagine that we can in some way capture, distill the body of Christ from the church. You know, that's transubstantiation. It imagines that this transformation occurs in the material bread, in the material wine, before it enters the body of the church. Consubstantiation, which was Luther's and Calvin's alternative to transubstantiation, simply spiritualizes the same thing. What both of these myths is that the 
humans or man-made organizations, we cannot isolate the body of Christ. We cannot control it in that way. We can't distribute the body of Christ. We can't manipulate it. Maybe this is the key moment in the founding of the Christian church. You know, when Alexander Campbell was uh, in the Presbyterian denomination, uh, I think he went to Glasgow to take communion. You had to go in front of the clergy, and they'd give you a test. And if you passed the test, they'd give you a little coin that was your ticket so you could stand in line. And that day when... Alexander Campbell is standing in line. There's 800 people. And he purposely gets behind at the end of the line. You know, they go through. You give them your ticket. You give them the coin. Sometimes these coins, even the preachers would put their name on it. It came to be. And so if you were a preacher, you'd gather up these coins. And, of course, you controlled who went in. This was your kind of savings. Uh, This was your means of power. These communion tokens became sacred objects so that some people, when they died, they said, well, please put my most recent token in my casket, I guess, so that when you got up to St. Peter, you could say, well, here's my token. You know, can I get in? It became a, a kind of system to accumulate power for the clergy, to ensure their station. John Calvin originated this. Uh, But it spread everywhere. It spread all the world. It was even practiced here in the United States. And the particular thing, I think, Campbell goes to the back of the line, 800 people. He's having a struggle. He thinks, I really, this is, there's something wrong here. Part of what's wrong is he's just met some brethren in Glasgow, the the Scottish reformers, James Haldane, there's a couple of brothers And he agrees with these guys. But he realizes they do not qualify to take communion because they're not New Light Seceder Presbyterians. I think there was a whole string of things, you know. They were the wrong party. And so tokens were for Campbell. And what he does, you know, he he waits it out and he gets up and he throws his token in and he, he doesn't take communion. He decides that this is an abomination. And that is really the beginning of the Christian church in many ways. In some, you know, Thomas Campbell and several people are going through the same sort of struggle. But they were, the tokens were for Calvin, or for Campbell, very much what the, you remember Tetzel's indulgences that Tetzel, you know, he was collecting money for Rome. He says, you know, when the coin is in the, in the uh, coffers, the, the ring of the coin will, you know, God will hear that and a soul will spring out of purgatory. And that was the point that Luther says, this is corrupt. And Campbell says, this is corrupt. This is not right. Where a group, you know, he says, makes the exemplifying man-made judgments. They can divide. Where a group presumes sole possession of the body of Christ. That's the way you get a currency of salvation, you might call it. A currency to enrich themselves. They can, you know, well, lord it over other people. This is the way that popes, bishops of every brand can regulate access, appoint priests, presume power, by virtue of presuming to secure access to the body of Christ. 
And so Luther, you know, that's the break. Campbell threw the coin in, quit the Presbyterians. As Thomas, one historian, writes Thomas Grafton, he says, The ring of that token, as it fell from his hands, like the ring of Martin Luther's hammer on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, announced the renunciation of the old church ties, and marks the moment of which he forever ceased to recognize the claims or authority of a human creed to bind upon men the conditions of their acceptance with God. He says, I'm not going to be bound by the shackles devised by human organizations, human denominations, and this is the impetus behind we. This is a unity movement that we're a part of based on the idea that there's a brotherhood of all believers. Right? All people who are Christians, we say, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so part of what Paul is depicting in Corinthians, especially in, in when he says that you are the temple, we need to understand well, what is the temple, first of all. You know, the temple is, it is the fulfillment of all that the temple is. But one might imagine the fulfillment is, oh, does that mean we get the rituals right? That we spread the incense properly, that we ring the bells, that we do the rituals in the right way. But of course, the rituals of the temple are not perfected, they're not fulfilled in better rituals. That's not the point. Rituals properly performed. And that's what we might imagine that, you know, some people even read Corinthians. They say, oh, well, see, what Paul is trying to do is get them to do their liturgy right. Well, liturgy just means worship. And yes, we're to get our worship right, but that worship is interconnected with all that we are. It's not better public performance of worship. It's not better coordination of the incantations that will conjure up God's presence. You know, maybe more. we need more smoke. We need more mystery. Worship is no longer simply a ritual like that. It is a life. That we live. Jesus had predicted this. He said that there will come a time when you will worship in spirit and truth, in which these ritualistic, symbolic, metaphoric understanding of worship is set aside. And that's what Paul is saying about himself in 2 Corinthians. He says, He is the minister of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. Here is the fulfillment, you know, Jeremiah's prophecy. You are our letter, he says to the Corinthians, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. The word is now embodied in the life of the community. And both Paul and Jeremiah explain this. You're no longer judges. There's no elites. You know, that's what some are saying in Corinth, right? Well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. There's not even, he says, that you don't even have a need for teachers. Paul says, now you might have some tutors. No longer shall each man, this is Jeremiah, and this is what Paul is reflecting. No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Remember, Jesus says, neither in Jerusalem nor in this mountain will you worship in Samaria. 
So to confine, to localize, to delimit or control this worship in spirit, in Paul's estimation, what does he say in this chapter? There is the danger your work will be burned up. He said, now you might be saved, but it will be only as by fire. He says I have in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is, this is the true worship. Holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. And the word here, spiritual, maybe if you're looking at the King James, it says this is your reasonable worship. Some might translate it rational worship. The point is that spiritual worship is no longer metaphorical, no longer ritualistic. It pertains directly to the transformation of your mind, of your life. There is both, this is Paul's point in Corinthians, there's correct worship, logos worship, and there's incorrect, you know, that the incorrect is rhetoric, philosophy, mere ritual. In Colossians, he gives us an example of worship gone bad. Let no one keep defrauding you by delighting in self-abasement. They were apparently, he says, you know, praying to angels. They apparently were praying to mediators. Not saints, but angels. But of course, that's what's going to come. Praying to icons. Praying to saints, praying to Mary. That was already there. They're praying to other mediators other than Christ. Taking his stand on visions from Colossians. He has an inflated cause he has seen. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. This sounds a lot like the Corinthians. The Colossians are also saying, well, we're having these spiritual experiences and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows together. Paul is saying spiritual worship, reasonable, rational worship, by definition, puts Christ at the head. Unspiritual worship, can we say, displaces Christ. Somebody else would stand in the place of Christ. Perhaps a pope, perhaps a bishop, perhaps a hierarchy. Paul's saying, and I'm going to, there is an alternative authority to this, that is that the authority of Christ really means something to Paul. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the decrees? Do not handle, do not taste. That is, you can come up with all kinds of rules, all kinds of procedures, all kinds of restrictions. Paul says that's not who you are. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. I'm still in Colossians, but Colossians sounds very similar to Corinthians. This is self-made religion. It's human religion. He says it's this self-abasement, this severe treatment of the body. Think of the fastings, the various things that people might do, the asceticism. Paul says these are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so throughout 1 to 4 of Corinthians, Paul explains that human rationality, human rhetoric, human wisdom, human law is in competition with spiritual worship, with reasonable worship. Paul says to them, I will come to you soon. And I will find out, not with words of those who are arrogant, 
The Corinthians are becoming arrogant. That's the human problem. But Paul is going to say, we'll find out just, you know, how powerful you are. Things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, he says in 2.13. This wisdom, these words, Paul is saying, incorporate the church. For this reason, we also constantly thank God in, in Thessalonians, that when you received the word of Christ, when you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. He said the same thing about the logos of the cross. So there's human words, there's human wisdom, there's human hierarchies, there's humans, human notions of power, and there's the Word of God, and those two things do not meet. They're, they're opposed to one another. And Paul is warning those who would presume to control access, to set themselves up as authorities. Oh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. That is, they're excluding other people. Paul warns them, you're in danger of destroying the temple of God. And if any man destroys this temple, God will destroy him. Paul warns the sectarians that they are in danger of condemnation, of judgment, uh, division. The presumption of control by human means is the ultimate sacrilege. Isn't that what he's saying? What could be worse than to destroy the temple of God? And so the proper response to the presence of God is not to delimit it, you know, to say, well, I'm a Paul or Cephas, or to presume to control it through human wisdom. The proper response is to be fully animated. This is what he's going to describe. Being like-minded. You are the temple, which means you are now in, uh, the temple is enfleshed. As Peter will talk about, you are the living stones of the temple. Ethics, worship, God's presence, Christ's presence are enfolded into this new living temple. Let me just state it very point blank here. The church is an ethic. We don't have an ethic. We are an ethic. Spiritual worship, rational worship is very much interconnected. It's maybe indistinguishable from ethics. Though Corinthians might be read as simply an attempt to correct behavior. I read a whole paper on this. Oh, what Paul is saying is they need to do their liturgy correctly. The Jewish temple pictured a coming reality, though, in which access to God would no longer be ritualized, no longer institutionalized, no longer mediated through law. And all of the accoutrements, when you say law, that meant the temple, that meant the sacrifices, that meant the priests. The temple was something, it was a representation of a cosmic, way the cosmos would work. God would be at the center and there would be cosmic reconciliation. And the church, then when he says, you are the temple, he's saying, here is the center of God's reconciling work in the creation. God's presence is not simply externally accessible. Oh, if we do these rituals or we do this thing, it's accessible. It is con continually there. It, do you not know that you are a temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That's a continuous process or a, a continuous reality. And in throughout Corinthians, Paul provides in himself an example of how this new worship, this new liturgy works. First of all, he refuses. They have all these problems, right, in the Corinthian church. He doesn't say, 
Oh, well, the Jerusalem Council said, or James said, or Peter said, or I say, but he's appealing to them on a very different basis. He describes it as the spiritual discernment operative in the community. In Romans, the will of God is open to the discernment of all, right? That we, we don't rely, that's what he means, we don't rely on teachers. We might have some tutors, but we then become, as the church, the point of discernment. So that no one of you, he says, will become arrogant, in verse chapter 4, verse 6, in behalf of one against the other. There is no place for arrogance. Each one of us will give an account of himself, in Romans he says, to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I'm afraid that much of what happens in the name of Christ is an obstacle, a stumbling block of human invention. And Paul says that, you know, the, the Corinthians are about to divide. Well, shall we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not eat meat sacrificed to idols? And Paul's resolution to this is, is to say, just a minute now, what is key here? And what is key is the conscience of the church. The stronger brother that needs to take account of the weaker brother. Peter says, you as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a spiritual priesthood. We are to intercede, go be, uh, for one another, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That means a lot of incense? No, that means the nature of the life that we live, acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Paul explains in Galatians that the baptized are one in Christ Jesus. You're no longer divided by ethnicity, social status, gender, you're part of a new family. And of course, the Corinthians are in danger of all of this. They're going to divide according to the money they have, the wealth, the social status. This was the problem when, with the Jews and even Peter when he came down from Antioch. That there was the danger of privileging ethnicity, a kind of cultural imperialism in regard to Jewish identity over Gentile identity. But the temple community is to embody an alternative identity, not of imperial superiority, you know, a clergy, uh, a special priesthood. But this is on the basis of living, loving sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God. We are no longer doing the symbolic sacrifices of the temple, but now sacrifice has become a living reality, and that is our spiritual worship. The marker of this new community is not in the, the rituals it performs. Oh, well, we magically change the bread and the, the, the wine into the body of Christ. No, it's not the incantations of the priesthood. It's the love. Paul says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. So the point is not who is in control. The point is not the proper tradition. The point is who loves rightly. And so Paul's appeal is not to something outside or extrinsic to what they have in Christ. He says in 110, 
I now appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you might be in agreement and that there be no divisions, no schisms is the word, among you, that you be ordered in the same mind and in the, in the same opinion. To enact the love of Christ so as to be of one mind, that is to be the temple, right? One-minded, in Christ, through love, is the church. This is the unifying ethic. It is definitive of the church. And of course, Paul is building toward this in chapter, thir- to, you know, in chapter 13, the great love chapter. The church is not constituted by rituals, rites, liturgies, hyper-spirituality, disconnected from this ethic. The ethic is the worship, and the worship enacts the ethic. Discerning the Lord's body, you know, how do you do that? Do you, you know, you've got to say, oh, well, here's this little cracker, and here's this juice. No, that's not, that's not the point. It is to recognize the brother and sister. Recognize the body of Christ. Here is the body of Christ. And act accordingly. That's what Paul is saying. They're acting rudely. They're acting selfishly. One man's going ahead and eating while another is, is hungry. It was a problem in Corinth because they were very poor people. Celebration of the Eucharist is not to think, oh, really hard privately in your head. It is to love rightly. And Paul gives examples of this continually. You know, the weaker brother will be taken account of by the stronger brother. He himself, he says, I don't want any money from you Corinthians. Because I don't want anyone to ever say, oh, well, he came to the... He says, now I could. I, he says, I'm deserving of, of money. But I don't want your money. Because I don't want that accusation to stand. He has that right. He draws out the principle of putting the interest of others above one's own interest. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. The point, even for the apostle, is not to exercise rights or authority. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. As one of the strong, this is how he wants the strong to act. Not a, he says, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of the many. So it's not a top-down hierarchy. It's not a corporate body dependent on that sort of authoritarianism. It's dependent on discipleship and imitation. Paul says, be imitators of me, in 1 Corinthians 11, as I am of Christ. One cannot legislate, institutionalize, authorize, control, or delimit this work. Paul says, no one judges, because God through Christ is in control. So let me paraphrase Paul to sum it up. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Anglican or Protestant. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. The church in Corinth, they would denominationalize themselves. They would split themselves according to various leaders. Pauline Christians, Apollos Christians. Paul is telling them, don't play that game. Paul didn't die for you, he says. I was not bad, you know, you were not baptized into my name. All things belong to you in Christ. This is the conclusion of this, ch- this chapter. 
But what human institutions would do is restrict access to the presence of God. But the presence of God is equated with the church. Don't you know that the Spirit of God dwells within you? So part of the problem, maybe in this movement, maybe Campbell's problem, when he breaks with the Presbyterians, we have a highly developed theology of baptism. But we do not have a very robust theology of communion, of the Lord's Supper. In the Restoration Movement, the Lord's Supper has often been reduced to a memorial of Christ's death. Now, Campbell himself railed against this. He says, you mourners to the house of sorrow, that communion is like as sad as a funeral parade. And that's wrong. Campbell pictured the Lord's Supper as a, it really is a real supper. He says, Christ did not assemble them to weep and well and starve for him. No, he commands them to rejoice always and bids them eat and drink abundantly. I think he's describing a supper. The table is a moment of fellowship in his presence and in honor of his love, Campbell said. But maybe Campbell's Lockean epistemology, his common sense epistemology, epistemology in the estimate of one historian church a christian church historian he says the lord's supper is more of an argument for the gospel rather than the experience of divine communion so where transubstantiation or consubstantiation maybe would put the body of christ in circulation in a kind of human economy in which these churches are trying to control the body of christ Maybe the the tendency is to put the body of Christ out of circulation entirely. And so two problems converge in, in a single question. How is Christ's presence freely mediated to us with the Lord's Supper? Where it is not free, where it's restricted, controlled, the body of Christ becomes subject to a human hierarchy. But in the Restoration Movement, where it's been declared free, a different kind of human-centeredness, anthropocentrism, enters in, in that it's reduced to a mere memorial. So in the first instance, the church becomes a human barrier, a stumbling block in a sense, a wall. And in the second, the church, the danger is, will become inconsequential to salvation. This is John Mark Hicks. He says, The assembly has become something we do for God and or something we do for each other rather than primarily something God does for us. We are being saved by God in this community of salvation. And so the church might be said to have the body in this understanding. It might be said to have an ethic. But there is a distance. There is a separation in this having. The conceptualization of the church then is the problem. The sectarians say, well, you must be a Paul or Cephas or Eastern or Western or Protestant or Catholic. You must be baptized in this order or that order. Only our group has the body of Christ. If you will submit yourselves to our authority, we will give you a little bit of the body of Christ. We will control access to the body of Christ. Not all things are yours. I think it's a direct contradiction of what Paul is saying. You must come through our notions. Do not taste. Do not touch. Fast on this day. Pray in this way. If you don't recognize this particular counsel, if you don't understand the Trinity in this particular way, then you cannot be part of our church. That was the New Light Seceder Presbyterian Church that Campbell was up against. If you've not received our token of approval, 
then you are not of Christ. And of course, one wonders if the great temples of Rome, Constantinople, Canterbury, and the hierarchies attached to them, is this what Paul is talking about when he says, you are the temple? Or could it be that these are the wood, hay, and stubble which will be burned up? On the other hand, to disconnect salvation from the body of Christ, you know, that it's available in the ecclesia, in the church, is to reduce the church to a human organization rather than the place in which the people through which we have the life-giving spirit. In either instance, man has presumed to put his understanding, his associations, his wisdom in the place of God. So let me conclude. With Paul's warning, it stands. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Recognize you are a temple of God and the, the Spirit of God dwells in you and enact this understanding through sacrificial love. The church does not have this ethic any more than it has the body of Christ. It is this ethic. It is this body. It is the spiritual portion. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.